Welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. Glad you're with me. And it's been quite a week. I couldn't think of a better one, though, to have Tony Greer on from TG Macro. And I promise you're going to love him. He's been on a remarkable hot streak, embracing what he calls the great rotation. And it's something that I think all investors should be aware of. Maybe I should repeat that. It's something every investor should be aware of. I'm also going to talk to Ozzy about the Bank of Canada warning for those people who are going to have to renew their mortgages at much higher rate. Just a hint, Ozzy's not quite pushing the panic button yet. And Victor's going to join us to talk about Friday's market meltdown. But just as importantly, this unusual combination, we got a higher U.S. dollar along with higher gold prices. I feel like an old KTEL ad saying something like, but that's not all, because we've got Pluralock's Ian Patterson. He's going to give us some essential warnings on cybersecurity, including what you have to do to protect yourself. I'll tell you, I got a big notepad ready, plus a quote of the week that sums up why there's going to be continued upward pressure on gas prices. But first, I hope you had a good week because I didn't. Why? Because I was finishing my taxes, in case you're not sure. The deadline for employees to file their taxes is April 30th, but for people with self-employed income, the filing date is June 15th. I can't think of another task, though, that I find so numbing and unrewarding than getting everything together, maybe my home expenses or to office-related travel miles on my car, to details of every investment I own, only then to hand it over to my accountant, the terrific Michael Sadovnik at Sadovnik Morgan. Every year, tax time begs a question, though, for me. I mean, every year I think of this. Given virtually every one of us thinks they work hard for their money, why don't we give a darn about how it's spent? I mean, the relentless stream of Auditor General's reports chronicles outrageous waste of tax dollars and mismanagement. But it barely rates a mention or a reaction from most of us. Now, I want you to be clear. I'm not talking about what they're spending our money on. Another debate. I'm talking about how they're spending our money. I mean, for the life of me, I don't understand, especially the lack of reaction from advocates who espouse for certain causes. Maybe it's poverty or homelessness or climate change, healthcare, you name it. But do they really not realize that tax dollars are limited? Because blowing tax dollars just guarantees a lack of progress. Big government advocates, though, are fond of saying taxes are the price we pay for civilization. But come on, wasting tax dollars has nothing to do with a civil society. I mean, come on, given that the carbon tax is up, property tax is up, payroll tax is up, gas tax is up, well, I should be feeling a lot more civilized by now. I'm probably within one tax increase of waking up with a bow tie and shine shoes. But saying taxes are the price we pay for civilization is a red herring. It's designed to obscure the fact that billions of tax dollars are indeed wasted. I'm going to give you just one quick example. What in the heck does civilization have to do with the $182 billion investing in Canada plan that Auditor General Karen Hogan found had billions of dollars unaccounted for, stating in quotes, the absence of clear and complete reporting on investing in Canada plan makes it difficult for parliamentarians and Canadians to know whether progress is being made against the intended objectives. But come on, no accountability, no measurable goals, We've heard that so much before. Heck, no goals at all. Well, that's a a formula that begs inefficiency. And there's no shortage of examples. I'm just going to give you one more, my favorite maybe. $65,000 that Parks Canada spent on building a fence up Signal Hill in St. John's. 
only to tear it down a week later because residents protested it blocked their view. So presto, $65,000 in taxes, absolutely nothing in return. You know, I've read every Auditor General's report since Denny DeSotel assumed the office in 1991. Sadly, 10 years later, he left the office stating his, in his final report to Parliament, looking at government mismanagement in quotes, why do these problems seem so intractable? Why do they persist year after year despite express commitments to set them right? Well, 18 years after that, in his final report, Auditor General Michael Ferguson said the same thing, basically. Our audits come across these same problems in different organizations time and again. Even more concerning is that when we come back to audit the same area, we often find that program results have not improved. Maybe more damning, by the way, was his observation that there's a culture in the federal civil servants that's predicated on avoiding responsibility. But somehow, billions of tax dollars wasted, unaccounted for, or mismanaged isn't a big issue. I mean, think about the last three federal elections, 215, 219 last fall, not a word about government inefficiency, not a word about waste or what best practices might be. I think the reason is that no party wants to incur the ire of public sector unions, especially during an election. I mean, after all, they collect $4 billion a year in mandatory dues, and they can spend it on third-party advertising. I mean, Unifor has been the biggest third-party spender in the last three elections, and their agenda is not government efficiency or eliminating waste. They're not interested in best practices. They're there to protect the interests of their dues-paying members. That's not the public good. And woe be to anybody or any party that gets in their way. But that doesn't explain why the public doesn't care. Why don't we care? You'd think self-proclaimed champions of the poor, or maybe healthcare is their issue, or arts, would demand to get the best bang for the buck. I mean, it also doesn't seem to be a big issue for most in the mainstream media. But you know what? Arguably, the biggest obstacle to getting rid of waste and inefficiency in spending is the structure of government itself. I mean, it's no surprise that money is wasted or spent inefficiently when there's no cost-benefit analysis done, when there's no incentive to spend our dollars efficiently. And let me be clear, there is nothing progressive about wasting tax dollars. Yet big government advocates never tire pushing for more taxes. And astoundingly, you don't think uh, that the incumbents in government think it's their responsibility to spend the money efficiently? Because they don't. It's the ultimate disrespect, though, for Canadian workers. But they get away with it because most of us don't seem to mind. Stay with me. I've got a great show planned for you. Coming up, my shocking stat of the week. And then Tony Macro, TG Macro, Tony Greer. As I said, I'm going to go to the shocking stat right off the bat here, and that stat is 8.6%. That's the U.S. inflation number for May. That's above analyst expectations while putting on hold, I think, any calls for its peak inflation. Although, you know what? Just to let you know, I mean, I hear so much coverage of, is this peak inflation? I think it's overdone, given all that really means is that the rate of increase of prices is going to slow. I mean, it's hardly a consolation for anyone, and there are a lot of people now starting to struggle with these high prices, whether it's your grocery store, obviously at the gas pump, etc. Well, I don't think it's much consolation to say, hey, it's not 8% anymore, it's 7% growth, because that's all peak inflation means, is that the, the rate of growth is 
a dropping a little bit, but it's still growing. But come on, we had 8.6% is the highest inflation rate since 1981. And that's put calls back on the table of three quarters of a percent rate hike as soon as June 15th meeting. What's also shocking, though, is the last time inflation was this high was 81. Federal Reserve funds rate was 13%. Well, the funds rate right now is 1%. Boy, that says a lot about where we're going with interest rates. But what's also noteworthy is that the Michigan Index of Consumer Confidence is at a record low, which suggests people are really feeling it. And it's interesting about that because a lot of people still have savings rates, et cetera, et cetera. You know, the job market's good. You know, wages are starting to go up. But you know what? I think it tells me that people are feeling the pain at the gas pump or rising food prices. It's inflation that's dominating their view of their own personal financial circumstances. But whatever, the Michigan Index of Consumer Confidence, a record low. I mean, there's so much to talk about. That's why I'm excited. Tony Greer is next with TJ Macro. I've been looking forward to this for a long time, been excited all week to get Tony Greer on with me, TJ Macro, but it's also, he writes The Navigator, I can't believe he does it, every day, and you can find it at www.tgmacro.com. Tony, got to say it right up front, so much appreciate you finding time for us. Michael, you're too kind, man. I'm excited to be here and talk about the markets on a day like today. Let me just... Um, Remind people about your background a little bit to save you the time. You're probably bored with that question. But you know what? When you've spent 30 years in the market, when you've worked for major firms, when you have run commodity desks, when you have run you know, equity, when you've run every occurrences too, every aspect of the market, I mean, it builds a perspective that you're bringing, of course, to TG Macro. But I think it's a key perspective here. I mean, with this much happening, I mean, I look at that action on Friday and you're sort of, I, I need a neck brace. You know, not surprised by it, but I need a neck brace. So tell me about a little bit when you came to the markets in this last two years. I mean, you've been dead on, and I'll talk more yeah. about that, obviously, we will, but dead on. What sort of things, uh, lessons did you bring forward with you? Well, you know, from, I have to say, Mike, I, I um, managed to look at my career, uh, you know, across the markets from 30,000 feet up. You know, now now that I had, you know, I had this supreme lesson in my career when I left the Goldman Sachs, J. Aaron commodity trading desk to go chase the dot-com bubble because I had been investing in dot-com stocks and they were all running away. And now I was going to sit down and try to trade these on my own. And I left, you know, the, the Goldman Sachs Commodities Index desk in 2000, in, excuse me, March of 2000 to sit down to trade tech stocks with the NASDAQ at 5K about to get halved. So that was one sort of life lesson in trading that I walked into and I got, you know, and paid for in spades, you know, looking back at the commodity super cycle that kind of trailed behind me. So ever since then, quite honestly, I have been looking for the next bull market in commodities. And so, you know, the last one was 20 years ago. So I've been extremely patient. But I, I definitely went into the lockdown spill in commodities, looking for bull market to come out of that, you know, realizing that eventually that the Federal Reserve's response to the crisis by doubling their balance sheet was going to come into effect. It was going to cause hard assets to go, you know, to, to change the way the market valued hard assets versus technology and growth stocks and things like that. And, you know, I came out luckily on the right side of that trade coming out of the lockdown. And it just so happened that we had this unbelievable opportunity 
where for the first time ever, we shut the global economy down and sort of let all commodity trading go to zero. So, you know, with the anticipation that I wanted to come out of that bullish and come out of that with a success story, you know, it's really wild to think about it. But the picture for oil looks better now than it did when it was trading $10 a barrel. You know what I mean? Back then, it was a little scary because you didn't know what was going to happen next. You didn't know if there would be another lockdown. You didn't know what was coming. And so, you know, we've plowed through this situation since that level where, you know, it's basically been one-way traffic higher. You know, we're looking at $5 gasoline in the States now. And, you know, we're kind of pressed up, up against that point, And the market's reflecting it as to whether we've got a stagflation scenario on our hands. And, you know, I'm still in that camp that we may have stagflation, but the upward pressure in commodities and hard assets is going to keep pressure, upward pressure on interest rates. So that's a little bit, you know, today, this is my big day in the sun here with, you know, U.S. two-year yields absolutely blasting off to 3%. And that's exactly what I'm talking about, where the commodity market is going to hold the bond market to task. And, you know, maybe not let treasuries up from, you know, this horrible year that they're having. And, you know, as I look at my screen, I got to find it. But treasuries are off. Where are they on the year? I mean, they were off more than 20% on the year. So in a pretty serious bear market. And, you know, that's the way uh, here we are. They're off 23% on the year in a bear market. And it seems like once again, the freight train has is still rolling to the point where it looks like we're going to still be facing higher inflation, better headline inflation numbers like we saw today. And then you see the bond market react to that. So this is kind of, you know, part and parcel of the great rotation that I have been expecting, Mike, and I'm happy to expound on any portion of that long winded explanation. Well, I was going to bring up, here's the thing. I'm always saying this, Tony, that we're in a business where the bottom line counts. You know, we're, we're getting it right counts. And so I want to make sure people understand that with TG Macro, you came out, and this is going to the second quarter of 2020, and said, guess what? There's going to be a major bull market in commodities. And, but the other side you put was, hey, called a great rotation. That's, if you've heard the phrase, well, Tony's the guy who originated that. The great rotation is, hey, be careful of these stocks, you know, of that sort of tech dynamo. Be careful because we're going to switch out of those and it's going to be a new bull market. And so here's the thing though. Okay, so now we're, as I say, that's going back nearly two years. Or yeah, it is. It's over two years now. Yeah. Sorry, over two yeah. years. You were saying that you were pretty lonely when you were saying that. And on Money Talks, just, you know, we were big time at that same time into this coming commodity bull market coming out of they're going to do renewable energy, whether it works or doesn't work. Demand for commodities is going to be so great. And there's been no capital investment. So it was no more sophisticated than that. But we actually ran a conference called the coming bull market and commodities in the first week of February 220. So I come along and I say, look at this guy. He's got a great track record. He's talking about it. Are you worried now you got more company? Well, you know, we are at the we are definitely into the positioning risk portion of that trade, right? It, it was very easy to stay long oil. I mean, I would say from the time that it went to zero or traded negative, it was easy to stay long up through the fifties or sixties. Quite honestly, it didn't. You know, that that was kind of a fast move. It was one way traffic. You didn't get tested many times, and. The only thing you had to worry about then was whether they were going to take demand to zero again. So now that we know that, you know, I'm getting a little more confident in the trade. Yes, it's definitely 
getting close to that front page of the newspaper trade, right? Uh, you know, there are guys like Jared Dillian who have picked up, you know, correctly so that sentiment is red hot right now in the energy space. But what's more important for me is that there is no gargantuan spec long in the energy space right now because a lot of portfolio managers are more concerned about demand destruction than they are about the supply side issue. And I've just been contending this time around that it's different in commodities because the old mantra used to be high prices in commodities are the cure for high prices. As in, we would pivot to a producer, the producer would increase production at a higher price, the production would make it to the market, satisfy demand, and eventually you would see price recede, right? Right now, we've got an attack on demand at the high prices. So we are attacking the producer as prices rise and we're not letting up from the producer. And then politically, we're pivoting to our enemies for our energy supply and learning very quickly that they don't like us enough to help us. So, you know, that, that's why it seems like right now the positioning issue, people are getting wise and they're saying, wow, Saudi Arabia is not going to bend. We're not stepping off the net zero 2030 gas. We're not stepping off electronic vehicle gas. It looks like fossil fuels are the way to go. So yeah, it's a popular trade. It's well navigable though. Luckily, you know, with all of the, you know, there's a lot of, the reason that I really dug into this trade, Mike, was because it's right in my wheelhouse of commodity trading in that, you know, crude oil trading is about the most transparent commodity trading that you can find, right? You've got real-time price action on the curves on every spread out the curve real-time price action and crack spreads. I mean, this is a transparent market. And so that's why I found that focusing in deeply there is where my edge is in the last year or so. I want to make sure people hear that distinction you've made there too, though. It's a very different commodity boom because of the supply issues. You know, as, as you say, you know, the old thing, once prices went up, people would increase production. Well, that doesn't seem to be any sign of that. And, and I think it's important for people to understand that's a big change here. And we could be talking about a lot of different metals at this point, too, besides the oil and the natural gas market. But that's a big change. That's a big change. And, you know, you can keep an eye on that because politically there, there hasn't been any budge, you know. And when you've got a transportation secretary that is responding to press questions about the gasoline inflation and food inflation, and the Treasury secretary is responding with, if you bought an electronic vehicle, you wouldn't be worrying about $5 gasoline, you know, without mentioning that the electronic vehicle will probably set you back $75,000 and it's not exactly a turnkey solution to high gas prices. So that's what keeps me in the trade though, Mike, quite frankly, is seeing the political messages that they're very clear with. And to my, in my opinion, the only thing that's going to stop this oil train, natural gas train, higher, higher food prices train is going to be a political pendulum that swings so far that, you know, somebody in the Biden administration is going to have to cave and say, you know what, we're going to rebuild this. We're going to rebuild this pipeline or restart construction on this pipeline, or we're going to allow you guys to drill on some of these leases that the Obama judges just nixed, to, nixed those agreements on. But until we see that, it's really hard for me. There's no way out of the room. There's no way out of the room. right now. Well, in including you know, talk about Saudi Arabia increasing production or, or somebody else. I mean, it's so naive also and completely clueless about why investors may not want to be involved with, hey, can I give you my capital for 15 years, you know, right. <laughs> to a product right. you don't want? 
you know, no. Right. Right. When the polit, you know, there there is basically political war on oil production right now, and you know, there is not an oil major out there dumb enough, you know, to take out, you know, a large line of credit to stick drills in the ground, right? This is not 2013, right? This is a very different, this is the opposite scenario, quite honestly. So we're going to see where it's going to lead us. But I don't want to forget about the, you know, the other side of the great rotation, Mike, because this is where, you know, we can help people with their portfolio. And I've been saying that, you know, with very much with the lead of following the lead of Grant Williams, whose work on this has been really cutting edge and educational for me. Um, have you checked your portfolios to make sure that you're out of the way of what is coming or at least position properly? Because, you know, we've been sitting here happy like pigs and shit with, you know, long bonds for 15 years because we've seen nothing but deflation. We've been sitting here, you know, happy, long, big technology because they've got more cash than God and they've got all this earnings power. And then we very obviously saw the best scenario in the world for all the big tech stocks during the lockdown, right? Everybody was at home communicating on Facebook, shopping on Amazon, searching on Google, entertaining themselves on Netflix. The earnings reflected that for a brief period. And now, as you can see, we've taken one tech general out at a time and shot them, you know, with various headlines. So, you know, that to me should be enough to rattle some investors to just check your portfolios, say, maybe I want to have a little less tech now, and maybe I want to have a little more natural resources if what these guys are saying is going to happen, because there's still time. One of the things that you wrote that it had not occurred to me is, and it's a classic sort of, I'd say, investor mistake on my part. But it's, it's, you know, how you've been in one scenario for such a long period of time, you don't actually imagine that scenario can reverse. So while I would be timid and, and was not caught in the tech decline, you know, absolutely was not caught in the tech decline. Uh, but then I thought, oh, my God, it could be a bear market. That had not occurred to me. And I know you're going to look and laugh at me, but it hadn't occurred to me that it could actually be a bear market in that sector as opposed to buy the dip opportunity in that sector. And this is some of the work, you know, obviously this is what the thesis of the great rotation has been and that you've followed through, you know, on TG Macro. But I want you to elaborate a little bit more on that because I still think it takes such a long time to have people change their minds. One of the reasons like the commodity bull market still got room to run. It's just such a hard thing to grasp if you've only been in one environment for, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten years. You you know, you make so many great points there, Mike. It's hard for what the investor, what the retail investor gets addicted to is the performance, right? And they get so addicted to the performance that they don't realize that when the performance stops, that at one point it may not come back, right? Everybody, they've always been, they've been trained for 15 years that tech survives all, right? If you BTFD every tech dip in the last 15 years, you got rich. And I'm old enough to remember the last tech bull market, luckily in 2000, and also remember most importantly, and maybe most presciently right now is that psychology takes forever to correct. So like we'll still we'll still see face melting short covering rallies at some point in technology. I, we haven't seen one yet because I don't think that we've gotten to that critical level where portfolios can take a break from adjusting, right? They're still in the in they're still in the mode where lower prices in technology are forcing them to cut their port their allocations 
and higher prices in energy are forcing them to say, man, we got to get off the zero boundary in these natural resources now and get some on the books because this picture looks unreal. So, you know, now we're managing the balance where the great rotation that I've been talking about is looks fantastic, right? We're at the extremes where, you know, we still got $121 oil and we've got the queues plummeting towards the low down, uh, you know, what are they down on the year? You know, 20 something percent. So now, you know, like you said, the people that the retail players that own these market that own these big names are going to have to make an adjustment to seeing them down XYZ percent a quarter, XYZ percent a month. And I don't believe we've gotten to the point of capitulation where they've said, you know what, get me out of Apple, right? Get me out of Google. And so that's, you know, the problem that we have with the indices with the great rotation is that the world is so long, all of these big, most popular tech stocks, right? They're the biggest stocks in passive investing. They're the most widely held stocks among plain vanilla mutual funds. They're the most widely held stocks by retail. So we've got a lot of length to clean out. And the beauty of it for, I think, the way we're positioned is a lot of that money is going to make its way into natural resources. And so I think there's going to be a huge rotation that way. Uh, You know, of course, with your background, you also know how those institutional investors think. You know, they come to the end of the quarter. They've got to be seen to be positioned correctly. And as you say, underinvested in the commodity side, you know, especially oil. I mean, I still look at the valuations of Canadian oil companies. Thanks, by the way, to people like Eric Nuttall, who does a great job at Nine Points Energy, but talking specifically about the undervaluation there. So clearly, we haven't had the rotations gone more to go that, you know, they should be a little embarrassed they don't have some of those Canadian oils. But that's how that institutional money will work at some point. Yeah. And and, and it's going to, you know, I feel I see it as a snowball. I really do. Like, I don't see the genie being put back in the bottle. And right now, like I said, right now, my my view happens to be extremely correct, but been under pressure, um, you know, maybe on the credit side, on the bond side before, you know, where, you know, Raul Powell's chart of truth which was the downward sloping trend in 10-year yields, never broke, right, for, for years and years and years. And now, finally, we've got a break. But what's most important to me is the action in the world that happened at the turning point, right? Because the turning point was a set of circumstances that is likely never to happen again. Our response to that, where we kept interest rates down like a beach ball underwater for an unnecessarily long period of time. And now coming out of that, where we've got the inflation on the screens, we've got double digit PPI, but we've only got 75 basis point Fed funds. So when you look at it, we're so far behind the curve of actually trying to have a material effect on this inflation story that I'm not sure what gives. You know, the last time what we've gotten, and I'll, I'll end this point, but what we've got now is we've got inflation back to where it was in the 80s. We've got the street behind it on estimates because they're all lagging. Inflation is way higher than any of the street analysts predicted portfolios are still behind because the street is still behind saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, this isn't it. This is still, you know, we may slip right back into a recession and then deflation, right? So now you've got them behind the curve also. So that's why I see it as I, we could go into a potential, you know, multi-year rotation out of technology and into hard assets, mainly because that event, those events that we saw at the extreme were so outrageous and so unnatural that they they very much rhyme with turning points in history. 
in other markets past, you know, so that's the way I'm looking for things. And we could see a five, 10 year bull market in commodities again. I, I did one of those posts the other day. It says, I'm old enough to remember, and goodness knows I am. But I do remember, you know, 1981, last time we had the U.S. inflation, 8.6. And what did you have? The federal funds rate, about 13%. You know, not 1%, 13 And just to, just re reinforcing your point, how far behind we are. And it's even, I, I'm having trouble even imagining where Fed fund rates would have to rise to you know, interest rates and others would have to rise to, to, to have any meaningful impact of a significant level. And that doesn't spell good when you've got sovereign debt crisis around the world. You know, you've got, you know, they can't afford the entitlement payments, for goodness sakes, you know, and interest payments and defense spending, let alone anything else. I mean, this is why it's such a fascinating period. It's a fascinating period. You want to add in the story of what Vladimir Putin is doing in Russia, where he linked his currency to commodities said he was only going to take payment in his currency. He got the ruble off its back, right? That it, that it, the pressure that it came under from the Russia-Ukraine engagement. And now the ruble is soaring away to the point that he's lowering interest rates, right? I mean, excuse me, what did they do in the ruble today? Do I have it? I want to make sure I have it the right way. Didn't they just, yeah, they just yeah, low, they lowered lower rates. Rate. Yeah, they right? lowered rates. Exactly. So, you know, talk about historic. We've got a guy that is literally breaking away from the historic Rothschild's banking system, right? And saying, no, nah, man, I got all the natural resources in the planet right here on my, you know, in my geography. And if I link my currency to it, it's a can't lose because they've just made themselves dependent on my energy, you know? And so, you know, you've got Europe now buying gas and rubles. You've got other countries buying gold and rubles from him. So this is historic times indeed. And I wonder if he's not laying out some kind of a roadmap for what might happen if the current system implodes. I've got one other simplistic sort of view when I look at the commodity sector vis-a-vis -vis paper dollars. I, I mean, I've been asking on this show for quite a while, you know, close your eyes for five years. Would you rather own paper? It could be Canadian dollar paper. It could be U.S. dollar paper. Or would you rather own, you know, oil, wheat, uh, you know, copper is a favorite of mine. I mean, whatever, but nickel, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, really, who's going to protect you the most? And I listen to these announcements by the U.S. government more so, but we're going to send whatever it is, 600 million in arms, you know, to Ukraine. I'm going, where'd you get the 600 million from? Oh, yeah, you just made it up. Right, right. And unfortunately, the number's 40 billion. Yeah. So it's a lot more than 600 million, you know. Um, by, by the way, in the, you know, we were years into the Vietnam War when we had spent $28 billion on it and it became so politically unpalatable that you saw what history did. And in under 90 days, we shipped $40 billion to the Ukraine with not even as much as, uh, you know, as it being questioned. So, you know, I mean, all that stuff is inflationary. It seems like everything the Biden administration does on top of their batshit crazy energy policy is also inflationary. Look at what their solution is likely to be to inflation. They're going to, they are, sorry about that. They are going to board the fossil fuel market ship and accuse them of price gouging. As we know, that's inflationary. They've talked about, right, they talk about writing checks to, you know, they talk about writing stimulus checks to help fighting inflation. Like um, I believe they already did in Canada and that's even more inflationary, right? We're going to expand the debt. We're going to expand the Fed balance sheet. It's going to be the same thing all over again. So it's really, really difficult to figure out what the right way to manage this is. But I think being hedged with hard assets in your portfolio is one of the few moves you can make. And TG Macro, you, you, you obviously give what's going on. You do it on a daily basis with the Navigator. 
and you help people with their, as you're doing with us here, the portfolio positioning there. So I want to sort of sum up a little bit here. You're certainly not in bonds, <laughs> you know? No. Yeah. No. And no, obviously, out of the way. Yeah, and obviously not in sort of, and I really think people have to think about what you're saying in the great rotation. It's two-sided. Maybe they're very familiar with the commodity bull market scenario out of this show, but not the other side, and that they have to consider what their risk appetite is if we enter a long-term malaise, a long-term bear market kind of move in some of these other stocks. And so within yeah. TG Macro, just give the people an idea with what kind of advice you give if they, you know, sort of subscribe to the navigator, et cetera. Do you break it down from sector into individual companies? Well, you know, I try to I try to avoid that really for for mostly for compliance reasons, to be yeah. honest with you, Mike. And I try to stay I try to stay within the ETFs, right? Because that kind of lowers my compliance risk. Um, but within the navigator, you know, my my original mission was to sort of teach people which way to look when they wake up and look at markets in the morning. Um, you know, I realized that there was, a, you know, coming out of being an institutional trader my whole life, I realized that there was a window there to teach the retail investor or who has now become, you know, the, the more sophisticated investor or the family office or the small hedge fund, which way to look in the morning, right? If they're not, you know, focused on, you know, necessarily what's moving. So I have developed my own system of following the markets, which is essentially just following the securities that I'm keen on in terms of their performance every single day, week, month, quarter, and year. And I kind of work that analysis into the way I put risk on, right? So I kind of, I allow the market to lead me to the places that, you know, the market is going, kind of point me in the right direction. And then I really use my natural resources background and a technical analysis overlay to figure out what trends that I should be jumping in on and at what points. You know, I have a lot of people, I have new subscribers that call up and say, oh man, I see you've been long all these natural resources, you've been long oil for two years, you've been long oil stocks for a year and a half, you know, is this a good time to buy them? And I am always, you know, 99% of the time, I'm like, no, this is not a good time to buy them, right? We've been in this trade for a year and a half. If you want to get into this trade today, you've got to navigate your way in, right? Which means being patient, waiting for pullback, you know what I mean? Waiting for sentiment to get stretched so far positive and, and spec length to get so big that there's only one way to go but down now. And then you got to find where that bottom is and get in tactically. But that's the way that I advise people because that's the way that I've improved my trading and investing performance over the years dramatically. And I mean, to the point that when I stopped my life as a sales trader, when I had begun developing, following the markets with this methodology and started writing my note with no other distractions about being a salesman, no commuting or nothing, my trading performance exploded. So I'm really now reading the tea leaves and trying to guide, you know, my readers into here's the, here are the way the street signs pointing. Here is the way to navigate into these positions. Here are the things on my radar screen that I may not have on yet, but I'm watching. I'm bullish these securities. I'm bearish these securities. And luckily so far, Mike, I've had an incredibly great run, very happy subscriber base that's making money. And, you know, tremendous growth because of it. So I'm blessed to have that, have gotten, you know, that right with a little bit of credibility on this call. Well, uh, 
but it's the key call, by the way. Also, I'll say that it's the key call to so have gone. Far, so far, so yeah. far, so good, right? Yeah, but and again, you do recommend ETFs, which you know people are familiar with, where you can, you know, it's not as much stock selection as, as group selection, because I know you've done very well in the natural resources, the base metals, and also uh, obviously the oil, you know, separate ETFs uh, within that. But your point is very well taken about where are you at as an individual? Ask the question, where am I at right now? Is this an initial position for me? Um, and if it is, hey, relax, be patient. It's a long-term move. You know, look for dips. Right. And so, and conversely, for example, um, you know, the the for example, the energy stock is the energy trade is roaring right now. Right, XOP like literally printing printing on its highs. XLE right at its highs. While you know, while I go ahead and write about every day, you know, the bullish developments in the markets, and sort of celebrate a little bit that we've got the call right. I am also recommending to my readers and also to a couple of clients that I consult for, this is where you make some sales, right? I'm not saying that you let the position out here, but on stretches like this, away from the moving averages, sentiment is incredibly positive. You've got to part with some, right? That's being a trader, right? You know, the, the exact opposite of telling somebody, no, 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 this isn't where you rush into the market. I'm quietly making sales here. Right. But that's because I want to buy it back lower. And that's the way you've got to think. So that's kind of how I've been, you know, very much navigating for as many people as I can and, and getting a lot of enjoyment doing it, seeing the different approaches that people come at the markets. It's also where 30 years of experience comes into play, you know, and the lessons learned over that. And again, I, I want to invite people to go to TG Macro. TG Macro, as I say, the Daily Navigator, all of that kind of stuff. Tony, look, we got to visit again real soon. I, I can go on forever, as you can tell, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I love it, man. You know, market enthusiasm is infectious and you can't fake it. So when I when I find somebody with as much enthusiasm about it as me, I, there's always electricity that starts going off immediately. So it was really great to have this conversation with you. And I'm happy to come back anytime in the future. Wonderful. I'll certainly hold you to that. Great stuff. TG Macro, Tony Greer. Thank you so much for that, Mike. Time now for the quote of the week, and it's one that should be of great interest to those people who are stressed or bothered, maybe who isn't, by record gasoline and diesel prices, which in turn play a huge part in the increase in our cost of living, as of course those high prices ripple through to so many other areas of the economy. But you know what? But despite all the focus on oil prices, including the price of crude being, what, it's on every single newscast, I think what surprises people is when I tell them, They've never bought crude oil in their life. That's right. Virtually none of us buy crude oil. We buy products made from crude oil, like gasoline, diesel, propane, you know, jet fuels influenced, uh, motor oil, though, lubricants. But we don't buy crude itself. Even more surprising for many people is that the prices at the pump are not the primary mover or have not been primarily moved by the rising crude price. No, it's the lack of refining capacity to turn oil into gasoline or diesel, that plays a far bigger price. And whether we're talking about Canada, the US or Europe, the demand for products like gas and diesel is far higher than the refineries can produce. It's as straightforward as that. Supply can't meet demand. So while oil prices, yes, they're high, the actual move though in diesel and gasoline is much more because they can't keep up with the demand, the supply can't coming out of the refineries. And boy, we got summer driving season coming, so the worry is that pump prices are going to get even higher. The question is, though, then why don't we just increase the refining capacity? Well, that's the context for my quote of the week by the CEO of Chevron's uh, president, CEO, 
Mike Worth, in quotes. We haven't had a refinery built in the United States since the 1970s. My personal view is that there will never be another new refinery built in the United States. You're looking at committing capital 10 years out that will need decades to offer return for shareholders in a policy environment where governments around the world are saying, we don't want these products, end of quote. Well, that's blunt and it's accurate and it has to be understood. I mean, who in their right mind wants to invest in fossil fuels? Now, it could be a new refinery or a pipeline or increased production. Why? Because the length of time to get a return on investment is so long because it takes so long to actually build one. We want a new refinery. We're getting told it's seven to 10 years. Well, who wants to lock up their money like that in an environment where governments around the world are saying we don't want fossil fuels? Well, that's the challenge we face when politicians then turn around and say we want more supply. Is there a week that goes by that we don't hear yet another story? Maybe I should have said a day goes by, another story about cybersecurity. And it impacts every area where we're doing now digital stuff, whether it's with your bank and certainly a lot of stories coming out of the crypto space, et cetera, et cetera. I want to get Ian Patterson on with me again. He's the chief executive author of Pluralock. Ian, first of all, I appreciate you taking the time, but you must feel busier every single week. Well, every single week. I mean, it seems like actually we get a couple stories per day of either a yeah. major hack or or a major crypto bust or or something. I think cybersecurity is just impacting everyday consumers now. Maybe 10, 20 years ago, it was kind of a nerdy subject, but it is forefront in a lot of people's minds today across a whole number of facets. So you're absolutely correct. Cyber is crucial in today's environment. Well, I think you're right, though, when you say it's on people's minds. I mean, you could go to, again, some of the things in that crypto space where presto, all of a sudden you didn't have, you thought you had, you know, your Bitcoin somewhere and presto, you didn't. But I mean, it can happen in any other area, too. I'm just talking about sort of the more recent headlines. And I think that does scare the heck out of individuals. You know, there's enough risk out there just trying to assess the markets or trying to assess what you're supposed to do personally on a financial basis let alone, man, something like this comes up. So it's interesting. It seems like every asset, regardless of what the asset is, whether it's it's a traditional bank, whether it's a crypto exchange, even whether it's a mortgage company, cybersecurity is just really, really important. So I'll give you a couple examples. Earlier this week was was meeting with one of our large financial institution customers, you know, very, very traditional, think think like a, you know, traditional bank, right? So so not not any of this Web3 stuff. But you know, the topic of conversation was exclusively cybersecurity. You know, later that day was talking to a, a mortgage company around the safety of their data. They were also concerned about security. And in fact, we were talking to one of their service providers and their service providers, not, not directly a, a cybersecurity company, but they were, you know, really more in the IT space. And they said every single customer conversation they're having, they're spending 20, 30, 40 minutes exclusively talking about cybersecurity, even though that's not one of their core offerings, that is the topic of conversation. So I think the answer, Mike, regardless of what asset class you're talking about, everything is underpinned by, is it safe? Yeah, I would, I would think absolutely. And as I say, as you alluded to, maybe 10 years ago, that seemed like quite an exotic subject. You know, now it's come home to roost for whether you're talking about companies or individuals, what have you. Let me just ask you this about the company itself. We've just gone through this huge shakeout uh, when it comes to, you know, well, everything, but certainly in the tech sector. Uh, I, I sort of suspect in an area like this, cybersecurity, it's a little bit of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. 
you know, these, these could provide uh, opportunities in an area that I think it's pretty much agreed upon is a huge growth area. Well, I think that if you look at the fundamentals, there there is more need now for cybersecurity software and services than I think that there was 10, 20 years ago. I mean, that, that just shows up everywhere, right? I mean, we, we started off talking about the news, but you can also look at the news for what's happening in Eastern Europe right now. You know, a lot of the kinetic warfare in, in the Ukraine started with cybersecurity warfare, right? And so there were a lot of hacks uh, that were taking place prior to the, the actual invasion and, and have been followed up with, you know, targeted attacks to, to infrastructure, to some of the services that are, that are present. So there's all these drivers for the need for cybersecurity safety. And whether that is connected or somewhat disconnected from, from how the, the public markets are viewing tech companies right now, you know, from my perspective, I just think that the need for this stuff it continues to increase. Well, and, and it's funny, you read, I read a lot of stuff on the geopolitical situation, and there's an awful lot of people weighing in that said that actual cyber stuff, cyber attacks are front and center of the new way we wage war. I mean, we've certainly been hearing a lot out of Taiwan on the same thing, the same issues. They're saying we're being attacked. And as you said, certainly happened in Ukraine. We got reports of that well in advance of, of people on the ground and, and missiles going. So, yeah, I think that's put on tons of experts who will tell you that's going to be the main feature going forward of conflict. Well, so if we look at some of the data points, you know, early on, prior to the invasion, there were attacks hitting some, some oil and gas critical infrastructure in Europe. So not even just in Ukraine, but also, you know, elsewhere in Europe to try and put more pressure on the overall system. There were also attacks going after satellite communications in Ukraine to try and disrupt the ability for the Ukrainians to, uh, to, to communicate. You know, we're also seeing a tremendous amount of drone usage. And guess what? Those drones are, are electronic and they're, you know, they're, they're susceptible to, to getting attacked from a cybersecurity standpoint, as well as a kinetic, kinetic standpoint, right? People can try and shoot them down or they can try and hack them. You know, all these things are fair game. So, you know, there's both direct and indirect avenues for adversaries to use cyber as, as a weapon. And that's in addition to kind of the run-of-the-mill ransomware crime groups that have been wreaking havoc for years, right? Think of Colonial Pipeline just a couple of years ago. You know, it doesn't seem like that long ago, but anyway, it was, you know, just, just recently, you know, that th those were financially motivated threat actors. You know, you also have nation state threat actors. And so again, I just look at these as, as drivers for the industry. And it's, it requires the good guys, the defenders to constantly innovate to constantly come up with new solutions to the, the problems that these bad guys are creating. You just read my mind. I was going to ask about that dynamic nature for a company like yourself. You know, you've been developing products, you've been winning awards, that kind of stuff. As you go forward, do you sit there and then strategize and say, this is where there's going to be the biggest market need, or this is where Pluralock can jump in and fill a void or, or maybe something more practical? Tell me a little bit about that. Just trying to understand from the company point of view. Well, our, our view on the cybersecurity landscape is one that is centered around the identity of a person. So we're we're very focused on looking at, are you the right person on the device? And as a result of that, um, making a determination, should we continue to allow access? Should we disable access, et cetera? So that's, that's our view on, on the world. But the reality is that the bad guys get a vote in all this, 
right? So you got, you got to make sure that you're constantly innovating and being able to respond to the threats and the the innovations that the bad guys are bringing to bear. I mean, it's it's actually it's interesting. We we are an AI company in the sense that we use artificial intelligence to identify people. That's that's the core secret sauce of of what we do. We've got a bunch of patents on this, but the bad guys are using AI as well. So we're seeing increased usage of artificial intelligence from the bad guys as one example using AI to personalize phishing emails. So when you get a phishing email, it's not just a, a copy and paste of somebody else's phishing email, it's actually personalized to you. And they're doing this at massive scale leveraging AI. So, you know, it's not just the case that, that the good guys get to use these new tools, the bad guys get to use these new tools as well. And so as a result of that, the good guys have to, you know, continue to innovate and that requires investment. And, and that's really what we're doing at Pluralocker. It's, you know, unfortunately, you've just brought up a very nasty memory for me. You know, it's amazing how personalized those phishing emails can become. And, you know, you would sort of understand how they're doing that part of it. But I was absolutely flabbergasted. It was a huge problem about a year ago. All of a sudden, people I know started to get emails from me, but they were so personalized right. that they were getting opened. And of course, there it begins. And I remember having to spend literally one day phoning every single person and emailing every single person. And my advice now is never open anything from me. <laughs> you know, never. I'll phone you if I'm sending you an attachment, you know, because I was just blown away by the personalization, you know, of like, of course they'd open it. It was incredible. It was like well, I knew the middle name of their children, you know. Well, there, there's actually an interesting economics argument here. So you think about if I'm just an individual, right, I might spend time, that's a, that's a costly expense, I might spend time and try and personalize an email to you. And that will increase the likelihood that it gets opened, exactly as you're saying. What we're finding now is that the level of automation and AI that the attackers can use is making it cheaper to run more attacks. And so really, that's that's part of the risk calculus, because if it's cheaper to run attacks, it means that there are more attacks to defend against, and therefore you need to spend more in order to defend against them. And so really you can actually boil this down to an, to an economic argument around as the ease of attacks is increasing, that is going to increase risk for the business and then the business then needs to respond. Any quick advice for individuals on this? And I know it's a broad subject, obviously it's an in-depth subject, a sophisticated subject, but just a quick kind of uh, response or, or advice you can give people as you give companies too, I want both. So I think one of the big things that you can do is start with yourself. And actually, if you're if you're a business owner, if you're running a company, try and get the employees to think about not securing the business, but just securing themselves. In a lot of cases, we find that if you can create that mindset, hey, I want to personally be secure, then you can bring those good habits into the company. But specifically, things like uh, using a password manager combined with using unique passwords everywhere. So don't don't ever use the same password mm -hmm. for, for two different websites. And the reason being, if one website gets hacked, the bad guys, again, will use automation to try and use that password and try and guess it across every other site that, that you might have an account on. So use a password manager use multi use uh, unique passwords and then the third thing is turn on multi-factor authentication or mfa everywhere that's available so if somebody if, if you if you go to log into a website and they say do you want a text message you say yes if you if you want to get even smarter you can buy a token like a yubikey or something a physical token that you can use to log in and then if you can do that at the business level so think about if you're using Google or Office 365, if you can turn on those, those settings, then you can start to enforce 
a higher level of security hygiene. And keep in mind too, it's not about being perfect. It's about being able to outrun or, or outcompete everybody else. If, if it's easier to go after your competitor, the attacker is going to go for the cheapest, most vulnerable business they can. They're going to ignore you. They're going to move over to, to somebody else. Wow. I don't have to wonder what to do for the rest of the weekend. I've got to go back to my passwords right away, I'm telling you. And I mean, and as, as individuals and businesses, and I, I guess, uh, as I say, Ian, you do a great job there and do it at Pluralock, which I want to get, by the way, the symbol for Pluralock, this is off the top of my head, is P-L-U-R dot V, P-L-U-R dot V. Ian, obviously, big things coming for you guys. You know, I saw an upgrade on your, you know, the company recently, but you can see why. I mean, this is just a huge subject going on and on and on and in depth. And I do appreciate you always finding time for us. I appreciate it, Mike. Always great. Ian, Pat Ian Patterson, CEO of Pluralock. Boy, there is no shortage of things to talk about when you see interest rates doing what they did. Of course, what stocks have been doing too. But I want to go to Ozzy Jurek now, ozbuzz.ca. Ozzy, new report out of the Bank of Canada started to warn about, hey, they're worried. We've got falling asset prices, yet we've got rising interest rates. Yeah, they're right to be worried. But I got to say, I stood back and said, wait a second, you caused both problems. You know, record low interest rates put on asset values. People borrowed more than ever. And now you're raising rates and those asset values are, are, are falling and you're telling me it's a problem. Well, and the big thing is, of course, they're saying we are going to have mortgage payments 45% higher by the year 2025, 2026. And that's scary by itself if you take it out of context. They then go on to say they expect the five-year term about 4.4% and 4.5%. Well, if that's what the rate is in 2025, that's what it's now. And the other thing, Mike, people actually in January 1, 2018 started to use the stress test by edict. They had to do it. So they already qualified at five and a quarter. So it's not nearly as far-fetched as, uh, as uh, this, this is uh, telling us. Well, I, I guess the, 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 the challenge is, is that people, first of all, Canadians have this wonderful track record in paying off their mortgages. You know, yeah. even in the worst of times when we went back, you know, to the subprime crisis, just as one example, you know, when you looked at the delinquency rate on mortgages, it was just fractional. You know, Canadians pay their mortgages. I guess one of the questions, though, is, yeah, I'll pay my mortgage, but what does that do in other areas of the economy? Like, I, I still look at those variable rate, the fixed variable rate, five-year, going up, what, a, uh, one and a quarter percent? already this year and that's removing you know that'll remove income i'm not saying i'm worried about defaults i'm just saying boy that's income that they'll now have to go i think i, I did a calculation on a six hundred thousand dollar mortgage it's about another four hundred and twenty five dollars a month so that could have gone somewhere else in the overall economy yeah i think people will pay it they can they can they won't be uh forced out of the market but it'll also impact other parts of the economy I don't disagree with them being concerned. You know, the, the debt loads they're worried about. You and I talked about the HELOCs, the home equity loan. You know, every time you make a payment, you get extra credit. And people have been using it like a bank and used to rack up tens of thousands of dollars worth of debts that they would never been possible if it hadn't been for that mortgage instrument. So I'm much more concerned about that because whatever the interest rates are going to be five years from now, your wages go up too, and you'll be fighting for those wages. And even if they only go up 2%, uh, even after taxes, that would make up for the mortgage interest payments increase.
So let's talk then against the overall market. Uh, you were saying beginning of February, you thought the top was in. That looks awful good right now. I mean, it seems certainly to be in as rising rates are getting people. And I think the psychology, too. I mean, I was looking at a number that I mentioned earlier where the Michigan uh, U.S. Confident, consumer confidence number was at a record low. And I think that comes from, hey, I'm paying more at the pump. I'm paying more at the grocery store. So just that sort of general malaise takes hold. Uh, to what degree do you think it's going to impact housing? Well, you look at Toronto right now. It's a 38% decline in sales, just like Vancouver. The difference is in Toronto has now increased in active listings, which is the first time, you know, because we've always been saying, well, listings are down, well, listings are now up. And that's uh, clearly a sign of a changing market. Um, the only area that's sort of hanging in there is Calgary. But that's also changing. Listings are increasing, sales are slowing, prices are up, up in, in Edmonton and Calgary. So if you're looking at Vancouver, as we said, uh, I think last week, Vancouver is clearly in a major change right now. And, and not maybe a surprise that Calgary's uh, doing a little better. Uh, obviously, it's the oil market. You know, 120 plus dollar oil has a tendency to change uh, attitudes there and perceptions and the economic outlook. Uh, I mean, I'm looking at the economic outlook there. Uh, it's astounding what high oil prices will do, for example, for the uh, Alberta deficit. If there will be one even a year from now, that's how pronounced that increase is in oil prices when it comes to government revenue. But so maybe not a surprise that they feel a little bit better than other parts of the country. Particularly if you look at the average home price at $580,000, you know, and look at our average at a million three or something, and a million, 2.2 million on a single family home. So clearly, there's a lot of people actually going back to Alberta. They're saying, you know what? Uh, it's cheaper. It's better. I actually like winters, you know, I'm a better place to lift, uh, lift up my <laughs> raise my family. Well, as I say, it, it's an incredible time when we see the kind of inflationary rate we got, as we talked all day about it, but earlier on out of the States, we'll see what ours is. We see the movement in interest rates, you know. Uh, the thing I find challenging, Ozzy, just very quickly is it's, you know, we all sit there on tenterhooks looking at what the interest rates are going to do and then what the mortgage rate's going to do, and then we'll decide what the market's going to do. But uh, you'll be there at ozbuzz.ca, that's for sure. You know, every Saturday you repost. I'm sure you're busy getting ready for tonight. You betcha. And Mike, just remember something. I have a memory like an elephant. I remember every elephant I ever met. <laughs> Ozzy Jurkin. Look, he's been a real trooper. Ozzy was a little bit under the weather this week, but man, he doesn't stop. This guy does not stop. He's got his eye on the real estate market, and you can take advantage of that by going to ozbuzz.ca. Ozbuzz.ca. We'll go live to the trading decks next. <laughs> Well, it's been a heck of a week. We're going to go live to the trading desk now, Victor Adair. Victor, I was smiling, thinking of if you thought you were going to get a quiet end to the week. No, but I don't think you did because we knew that inflation number was going to come. I mean, they don't surprise us with when they're going to deliver it, but it looks like the market was pretty surprised what they delivered. Yeah, I think what's happened here this week is the market is actively repricing the, the, the question, you know, what are the central banks going to do? Uh, there for a period of time there over the last couple of weeks, I think there was people that thought, OK, we've seen the worst of inflation. The central banks have told us the worst of what they're going to do, and we can live with that. OK, now it looks like the market's saying, oh, my gosh, the central banks are going to be even more aggressive than we thought. 
and they're having to reprice that. In shorthand, what that means is interest rates are up, the U.S. dollar is up, and the stock market's down. Yeah, we got that little rally after that initial down move, you know, and the rally was sort of predicated on the fact that the, the Federal Reserve would back off sooner than the market had just anticipated. That looks like it's been reversed. I mean, I always remember watching yesterday after the number came out, and we had people like uh, Barclays come out right away saying, hey, they're putting in a three quarters of a percent forecast for the June 15th meeting. And I guess that's what the, the worry big, big time now is, hey, maybe they'll be even more aggressive, certainly than we thought two weeks ago or four weeks ago. Yeah, I remember at that time you and I were talking and uh, I said, we've got a bear market rally going on here. And I quoted uh, David Rosenberg saying, you know, this is the kind of a rally you want to rent. You don't want to own it. Yeah. You know, and so we, we had a bear market rally. That's been the, the, the trend here certainly since last November in the, in the major indices, the, the market's been trending lower, interest rates have been trending higher. We have this week, the, uh, the 10-year U.S. Treasury has gone to an 11-year high yield. So that's just one, one aspect of how interest rates are going up. That's certainly the most watched bond, though, the, the 10-year. Uh, I was alluding to earlier in the show, a two-year went to uh, the highest it's been since 2008. I mean, that just gives a perspective on, you know, it's been a very aggressive move on that front. But let me ask you about something else. And that is, I thought it was interesting, the strength of the U.S. dollar. And I'll, and, and I'll come after that. I want to ask you about gold because it went up, too. Yeah, when you see the U.S. dollar and gold both rise at the same time, that's telling you the market's worried. There's, there's stress there. That's an unusual thing. Typically, over, you know, a 20-year period, they go in opposite directions. But when they're both marks in the same way, it's almost always because the market's worried about something. And it's like, let's just get safe. Let, let me go further with the U.S. dollar in this way. I, I, I hope our audience just automatically would then, when they hear the U.S. dollars doing that, understands that. Can you imagine the pressure that's on emerging markets? You know, because if you're buying oil in the, you know, in the open market there, the world market, and your currency's dropping while oil's going up, it's a disaster, or food, for that matter. And that's why I think it sort of sows the seeds for even more problems coming out of the emerging markets and how that will ripple effect. So just when you say we get that big, strong move in the U.S. dollar, which you've been chronicling for a, a while, I just say, boy, I start shaking my head immediately about the, the stress that's going to cause. I and mean, we were already got certain countries on the brink, like Sri Lanka, like Pakistan. Man, it's a disaster. Well, you don't even have to go to the emerging markets. I mean, I just out of curiosity created a chart here this morning to see how much it costs to buy crude oil in yen terms. The Japanese yen, as you probably know, is here at a 20-year low relative to the U.S. dollar. And in layman's terms, the root cause of that is the Bank of Japan's doing nothing while the Fed's being really aggressive. So the U.S. dollar is strengthening. Anyway. You know, we remember $147 U.S. crude in 2008. In yen terms, crude oil has never been higher than it is right now. So, you know, if they want to continue with deflation over there, you know, I, let's just say the equivalent is they're paying $10 a gallon for gasoline. And, and again, uh, I mean, we take an international view here as well as domestic, and that's what separates this show is the understanding of the ripple effects of things like that. And, uh, you know, we're in a precarious financial situation globally because of sovereign debt. And so I just, a great point that you're making, Vic, is that 
we have to understand that, look at that pricing in yen. I could look at the pricing in other countries too. It's not just, we don't like $120, $122 oil, whatever, you know, or Brent crude a little higher. We don't like that. Man, it could be devastating for other countries. You know, it has the ripple effects in their economy and their banking system and so on. And I guess that's why I'm nervous. And maybe that's partly why some of the market's nervous. Well, you know, let's go to the Canadian dollar. You know, we see the Canadian dollar almost always in terms of the U.S. dollar. But I'm, I'm telling you here that the Canadian dollar is at a nine-year high against the, like, virtually all of the major European currencies, including the euro. It's at a 14-year high relative to the yen. You know, we're, we're, sitting, we're, we're energy self-sufficient, even though the prices have gone up, we can still get some. You know, we're food self-sufficient, more or less. you got to bring oranges in from someplace else. But, you know, Canada, relative to the rest of the world, is sitting pretty. Let me, let me finish with this because, uh, you know, I, I alluded to this earlier. The media talks about uh, diesel. They talk about gas. You know, every, every newscast seems to have a gas price, you know, story on it. But the other one that we followed on Money Talks, and I know you keep your eye on on a daily basis, if not even more frequently, is natural gas. That, to me, is the big story because of the relationship with fertilizer and food costs. Yeah, well, I mean, I heat my home with natural gas. I guess my bill's going to go way up from what it was. The natural, the, the wholesale price of natural gas in New York is trading now at about triple where it was a year ago. I mean, crude oil, gasoline, and diesel deservedly get all the media attention. But natural gas prices have really gone up. And, you know, the, one of the real reasons for that is the Americans are exporting nat gas to Europe because they, Europe can't get nat gas from Russia and so on. So you get this arbitrage going on. It's great if you're making the arbitrage play. But if you're a domestic person here, you're, you know, using natural gas, you're, those costs are going to go away. Why that's important, Mike, and I'll make this really fast, is that from my view, Surging energy costs are what is creating the inflation, you know, like either directly or indirectly. Indirectly means somebody's got to buy gasoline to put it in the truck to drive some food somewhere. That's an indirect energy cost increase. And that is the the inflation component. The biggest part of the inflation component here is the soaring energy costs. Yeah, and it was he heard from Tony Greer earlier, you know, he looks at that commodity sector you know, that's, you know, as you say, energy costs, other commodities driving this forward, including uh, the cost of wheat and corn. Vic, great stuff. VictorAdare.ca. He follows it nonstop. Take advantage of it. VictorAdare.ca. Vic, have a great weekend. I know, great week. Thanks, Mike. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. Well, come on. Everybody's talking about it. I continue to talk about it, I know, but it's record high gas and diesel prices because it seems to be on everyone's mind, including politicians. Why? Because those rising prices are the number one issue for voters. Which brings me to this week's Goofy and the statement by the former head of the Federal Reserve and current Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, who joined the political blame game by saying that the current oil price shock is because of the failure of oil producers to anticipate the increasing demand once COVID starts to dissipate. She went on to say that producers now have an incentive to increase production. An incentive to increase production. Well, blaming the oil companies is now a familiar theme for politicians who are running hard away from the policies that they push that discourage investment in both oil production and energy infrastructure. The problem is it's utter BS. This is just the last week, and I want you to consider it. 
the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, proposed a rule that would make it easier for state officials and tribal authorities to stop pipeline and other energy projects. Gee, that's hardly an invitation to invest the capital needed to increase oil or gas production. Either is the line that inflation is a result of greedy oil companies. This is Nancy Pelosi tweeting earlier this week in quotes. In the middle of Putin's war on democracy, oil and gas companies continue to reap record profits and take advantage of the crisis by giving $41 billion to shareholders. It's unacceptable that big oil companies prioritize executives over consumers while families struggle at the pump, end of quote. Well, just even ignoring the fact that all of a sudden she goes from shareholders to executives is a bit much. But that's hardly an incentive to invest more capital to increase production. Nor is all the talk, by the way, in the U.S. about a windfall tax. Well, especially after the U.K. has instituted one. I don't think they're going to do it, but the talk certainly doesn't help. Right now in the European Union, come on, which is struggling with record high natural gas prices and a dependence on Russian gas, environmental groups have launched, right now, have launched legal action to challenge a decision by the EU's executive arm to include 30 natural gas projects in a list of operations considered to be beneficial to the 27-nation bloc's energy market. They call them climate destructive. You know what? There's so many examples, but I'm just going to give you one from the States. And think about yourself as an investor. What message does this send? The area in New York called the Appalachia, which is about one-third of U.S. gas production, also has massive reserves, but needs more pipeline capacity to take advantage of it. But environmental regulations have killed or delayed all four recent pipeline projects. Mountain Valley Pipeline would take gas from the region to Virginia. It received federal permits. It got its permits in 2017, and it began construction in 2018 and was expected to come into service in 2019. Despite being 92% complete, numerous court challenges have halted construction. It's now $3 billion over budget, and the hope is maybe it could begin operation in late 2023 at the earliest. But analysts fear it may never be completed, and it's become a financial disaster for the developers. But think about that. The experience of Mountain Valley Pipeline is sending a resounding message to others who might invest in similar infrastructure. In a nutshell, it's the story of oil and gas development, along with the development of new refineries, as the CEO of Chevron uh, alluded to in our quote of the week. Politicians and government officials like Treasury Secretary Yellen absolutely refuse to acknowledge the negative investment climate that they've created. I mean, the old saying is that high prices cure high prices, as I talked with Tony Greer about, because rising prices, of course, encourage more production, more supply, which brings prices down. But that's not happening. It looks like prices have to be a heck of a lot higher, for example, than $120 oil to convince investors to take on the political risk, lock up their capital for, what, 15 years. But in the meantime, here's the point. We better get ready for even higher prices to be with us for a longer period of time. That's all the time we have this week. I hope you go out and have a terrific week. There's so much to keep abreast of, though, so I ask you to join me on Money Talks Tweet and Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook so you can keep up to date. Man, the environment is changing. It feels like at least on a momentary basis for me. That's the best way to stay involved, to stay up to date, and I hope you do it. But in the meantime, as I say, have a great weekend.
This is the Money Talks podcast with Michael Campbell, available at mikesmoneytalks.ca or through your favorite podcast subscription service. Join us on Facebook at Michael Campbell's Money Talks and on Twitter at Money Talks Tweet.